Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast. Helping you invest in property for freedom, choice and profit. You'll learn new, innovative and multiple streams of property income. Whether you want to start, scale or systemize. And even if you don't have deposits. Hi, Kevin McDonnell here. And welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast. So recently, I did a series of Facebook Lives into the Progressive Property community where people had the opportunity to ask me questions. So it was an ask me anything on all things property. Were there any challenges you've had, any shares you needed to make, any obstacles you're facing, anything relating to property where you needed the answer to? So if you want your questions answered, you need to subscribe to the podcast. You need to follow us on YouTube. Join the Progressive Property Facebook community. Ask your questions in there. Get your questions answered. Become a bigger part of the community and make sure you've got the right knowledge and the right support to move you forward in your property journey. So let's get started with the episode. I've been Kevin McDonnell. You've been amazing. See you next week. Afternoon, everyone. Kevin McDonnell here. Um, Rob asked me, obviously it's support a week, so he asked me if I would do some content today around joint ventures, other people's money, no money down property investment strategies, things like lease options, rent to rents, assisted sales, EDCs, whatever it may be. Any, any strategies, anything you have around property and how you can get started or scale your business in property using little or none of your own money, um, how you can raise other people's money and raise it quickly, different ways to do that. So what I thought I'd do this morning, well, this afternoon is um, just taking your questions. So if you've got any questions you want help with or any, anything you want some advice or support on, um, just put comments below in the thread. So put comments below in the thread anything you have and I'll spend as long as I can on here um, answering your questions so um, so I'm going to lose in loads of questions they're all coming through now I'll do my best to keep up with the first one best way to look for commercial development funding so do you mean from banks or joint ventures because if you're looking at commercial conversions initially trying to secure a commercial conversion it's you're, bu- you're buying a property that needs a lot of money spending on it. You need to work out the gross development value of that building, work out what money you need to spend on it. The best ways to do, to do commercial buildings if you want to reduce your risk is to join venture on them, especially if you're starting out and it's one of the first deals you've done. I've done a few commercial conversions and I've, I've done joint ventures with up to four people in the deals. Now, one specifically I did with four people was one guy who just rang me up and told me about the deal. I discussed the deal with the, with the sellers and negotiated the purchase. Somebody else came in and put the money in, so a JV partner funded the deal, and finally the fourth person was the builder, and he developed, he, he built the development, converted it from a, uh, it was a bowls club, converted it into a 12-bed HMO. So we split it four ways, 25% each, and we looked for JV funding for that deal. Because on a commercial conversion, what you'll generally have is... Um, you'll be able to possibly, if you're buying and then refurbishing, you'll be able to borrow 60 to 70% of the purchase price and up to 100% of the development money. The challenge is getting the 30 to 40% deposit to buy it in the first place. You could just look for JV partners. So there's a lot of people with a lot of money out there at networking events in, um, in this community, e- even in the supporters group, that will have the funding to, to invest into deals if you find the right deal. But quite often, 
the money is actually in the building. So you could joint venture with the owner of the building. Now, if you joint venture with the owner of the building, let's say somebody's got a commercial building, but they don't, they have got no debt on it whatsoever. You could go in and do a joint venture on them where you work together and not without needing any money whatsoever, you could approach a development lender who would lend 100% of the development against the building. So that allowing you and the owner to do that development together. You, make, you get to make a profit without putting any money in or needing to go anywhere other than the seller to fund it. And the seller makes more money than by waiting for their money till later. So they stay in the deal as part of that deal. And you might be thinking, well, why does the developer need me or need you? Why don't they just do the whole thing themselves then if they've got no debt? Quite often, the reason they'll stay in the deal is because they might have a, a building with no debt against it, but they don't know how to do the development. They don't even know that they can borrow the money against it. They don't know they can get 100% development funding against the building if it's unencumbered. Unencumbered meaning no debt on it. So you could join Fincher. I'm just conscious hundreds of questions have just come through. But you, so you could join Fincher with the owner of the development. Outside of that, do lots of lives. I'm doing a live now into the community, but why don't you do lives around, I'm looking for commercial buildings, be posting about what you're doing looking for commercial buildings, um, regular posting, regular lives, regular intera interaction on social media, and people are going to be interested in what you're doing. You'll have people approach you saying, if you find a deal, let me know. I've got some money available that I'm willing to put into that deal. Don't just find a deal and then try to raise the money. It's a chicken and egg scenario. If you go looking for a deal, you find the deal, then you start looking for the money. You, you, by the time you found the money, you might have lost the deal. So uh, what I do with a commercial deal is I'll use a, a, a no money down strategy, lease options, and I'll secure the option to buy the development on an option to buy subject to planning. But that gives me time to pay a little bit for planning and go out and start to raise the money. So you secure exclusivity on the development subject to planning permission. Buying and then applying for planning is very, very risky. Securing on an option, applying for planning permission afterwards before you actually purchase it. So secure the option, then apply for planning. You're reducing your risk. But the, the hidden benefit is it gives you time to not just apply for planning, but to raise the money to deliver the development. So that, that gives you a lot more time and a lot more scape, scope sorry, to try and get the money raised for a development. If you're buying it today and you make an offer, say today it's Wednesday, you make an offer and you need to have the money in a week's time, you, you don't have enough time for somebody to put a lot of money into a deal to do their due diligence, etc. But if you secure it on an option subject to the planning, the planning process could take six months. You've given yourself six months to come up with the money. So if you've got a, a million pound deal, a million pound plus deal, you've got plenty of time there for somebody to do due diligence, to work out what the GDV is, what the development costs will be, get builders quotes, everything done. So you're very clear on what the numbers are, but you're using the requirement for planning kind of as it's an, it's a requirement, but you're also using it as an excuse to buy yourself some time to go out there and raise the money. So, um, I can't even remember what your question was, but it was around commercial conversions. Hopefully that answer helped. I've had a million questions. I've lost track of what they are. So just let me give a look and see what else has come through. Hi, Kevin. It's Mark Frazier. It's great. You're on here. Cheers, Mark. Um, I'm halfway through your no money down book. Only halfway. It's been out nearly a year, Mark. Come on. I'm kidding. And you said in that, if we message you, you'd hand out your accountant and our go a very good property accountant. 
absolutely, Mark. So send me a message on social media. So in my book, if you want um, an accountant, that sort of stuff, you send me a message and I'll send you um, some details of who I use. Keely, I'm thinking about rent 2SA in flats. Most seem to be leasehold. From your experience, is there any success agreeing this with a leaseholder? A great question, Keely. So lots of people talk about rent to rent and rent to HMOs, houses of multiple occupation, or rent to serviced accommodation. A lot of people forget rent to single let. But most people, when they're doing rent to SA, will seem to focus on rent to SA on flats. Don't forget and don't rule out that you could do rent to SA on, on, a, on terraced houses, semi-detached houses, larger properties. But if you are doing them on a flat, then you, your challenge is, and this is something people don't realize, you can meet the letting agent and agree a rent to SA deal on a flat. You could, or a rent, you could meet the, um, the owner of the flat and agree the deal. So you've got the agreement of the letting agent and you've got the agreement of the owner of the flat. However, the most important person on a leasehold flat when doing a rent-to-rent deal is actually the freeholder. So the freeholder, the person who owns the ground that the flat's standing on, needs to approve your, the use of that apartment. And a lot of apartment complexes have, if you're looking at the big developments where you've got like say 40, 50, 60 plus apartments in one building, they will have in the lease that they've issued to the owners of the apartments, um, some rules. And one of those things that'll be in the lease is no holiday lets or no short-term lets. Now, it's not in all apartments, but it is in a lot of them. One of the ways to get around this is don't just focus on these apartments. Some freeholders will allow it. What they'll do is they'll either just say, yes, it's fine, you can, or they'll charge you a yearly fee. So they'll charge you like a, a um, subletting fee, they call it. But that's one type of building. Don't, if you can, do never, ever, ever do a rent to rent deal where the leasehold, the freeholder has not approved it. Some people I know take a risk and they go, oh, well, how will the freeholder fo- find out? Here's the challenge. Let's say you've got an apartment block of 50 apartments and you've got apartment number, number six. Somebody comes and stays in your apartment on a Saturday night. They go out for a party and for a few drinks, whatever it may be in town, and they come back at 2 a.m. in the morning, drunk, and they can't find your apartment. You've got the approval of the landlord to do rent to rent, and you've signed a three-year contract and to guarantee their rent and give them money every month, and you've got the letting agent's approval, but you didn't bother to get the freeholder's approval. Somebody comes back at 2 a.m. in the morning, they can't find apartment six. They bang on the door of apartment one. They bang on the door of apartment two, apartment three, apartment four, apartment five. And then finally, they realize that they're in apartment six, but they had forgotten because they got drunk. The next morning, apartments one, two, three, four, and five, the people in those apartments, who are they going to complain to? Not your letting agent and not your landlord. They're going to be complaining to the freeholder, to the management company in the block. As soon as the freeholder realized what you're doing, they could turn around and say, no more serviced accommodation, no more holiday lets. It's not allowed in the lease. You cannot do it. The landlord is totally within his right to say to you, not my problem. You've signed a three-year contract with me. I don't care that you can't rent it out as SA. You've got a contract with me for the next three years. Pay me. Pay me. So don't ever do a rent-to-rent deal in a block of flats or anywhere unless you've got the full approval of the people, of the freeholder, if it's a leasehold flat. Get the freeholder's approval. Get it in writing. 
don't do it without their approval because you could get find yourself unstuck, especially if you sign into a long-term contract. Um, oh, don't just focus on these type of flats, though. If you've got um, a lot of flats, or like a, a house, so a big, t large, say, Victorian house, maybe in London somewhere, wherever around the country, and the owner has broken that house up into three flats, one on each floor, th that's a brilliant place to do, to do um, SA on, because the freeholder will likely own all three flats or own a couple of them, but you're only, you're only dealing with three people. They generally don't have anything written into the leases like the big developments do about not being able to do holiday lets or short-term lets. So it's easier to get those type of apartments. But also just focus on single-let houses. But always check the lease. If you're looking at a leasehold apartment, always, always, always check the lease and make sure that you are allowed to do ho holiday lets, short-term lets. If you're not allowed to do it, do not ever do it without approval. Um, hopefully that answers your question. Um, loads of questions coming in, so I'll try and do my best. Natalie, I am Natalie Preston is saying, Hi Natalie, I am looking to buy a business. We are thinking about asking the vendor to finance us in some capacity. How do we broach this subject with them? Would putting the business into a limited company and them having shares be a good option? That could work, Natalie. Um, first question is, if you're thinking about buying a business, so what's the business? If, if the business is, because the business could be properties, so we buy properties within limited companies, most people now, or you definitely should be because of Section 24. The business could be, um, I run a letting agency, it's a separate business, or maybe it's some other type of business. So if you let me know the business, that'd be great. But as an example of a business, a, a limited company could run more than one business. So if I use an example of ours, I've got a letting agents, that's the only business within that limited company. But if I had three or four letting agents within the limited company, and I wanted to sell one of the shops, then I wouldn't be able to sell the entire business. I'd only be able to sell one of the shops. However, if I have one business, one limited company with one shop within it, you could buy, not the business, you could buy the company not the building, by the company. Um, I don't know if you're trying to buy a building here or just buy a business within a building. So I'm, I'm going with what you've given me. Um, but so if you, were, you, if you had property and the business and the property that the business is run out of, you could buy the whole company, which would include the property. If you are just trying to buy a business, you could um, get the person to leave some shares in. So to keep a share and pay them out later. Absolutely, you could do that. So give them some shares in the company once you've bought it. One of the things I've done is in, in the past is buy a building. And then if the starting point is in when you said is how do I broach the subject is ask the person that's selling what's their plans once they've sold the business. So let's say they're, they're going to release 200 grand. What's their plans for the 200 grand? Where are they going to just stick it in a bank? Are they going to reinvest it in something? What are they using that money for? And if they've got no real plan for the money, apart from I just want to get rid of my business, you could say to them, rather than leaving the money sitting in a bank account making no interest, have you considered investing the money into a business? Have you considered leaving the money in this business? If you were to leave the money in the business for, say, five years, we could pay you a monthly interest on your money and then a final balloon payment, so the remainder of the 200 grand, in five years' time offer them more than any interest they could get in the bank. So I'd just ask them, what's your plan? The starting point is, what's your plan for the money once you've sold? 
I've bought some properties where we've bought the property, the person gets their money, dropped into their bank account, and then lends it back to me afterwards. So not as shares, they could lend it back to you afterwards at say three, four, five, six percent interest, or even more if it works for you. But try and get it for as little as possible. So they you, you sell the, you, they sell the business to you, you pay for the business, they get the money in the bank account and they immediately lend money back to you from the money they've received. That's the most legal way to do it or leaving shares in a company. So they'd sell part of the company today and sell the rest later. But don't try and do this where um, they do like massive gifts. You can do a small gift, a small gift on a property sale, but not huge gifts. You couldn't gift 200 grand unless it was to a family member. You couldn't gift 200 grand to a total stranger. It would be seen as a linked transaction, which could be illegal. So, but what you can very legally do is pay for something and then have that person lend it back as a completely separate transaction later, giving you the money back that you had initially used. But most, most banks, if you're borrowing money off a bank, will want to see some skin in the game from you. But you can put the skin in the game and then get the skin back once the transaction is completed. So hopefully that answers your question a little bit. I've got more coming through. Um, Dave Hopkins. Hi, Kevin. How do you approach a JV partnership when looking for a JV partner with money? So how do you approach a JV partnership when looking for a JV partner with money? How do you structure the partnership or the contract? I'm starting out, I'm looking for JV partners with the cash. What is the next steps? Hope this makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, kinda. I'll, I'll work on it and see where I can come up to. So you're starting out in property, you've got no, let's say you've got some money, but you don't want to spend your own, or you've got no money. You're looking for a JV partner. The starting point is what, N- not about you. Most people starting off, they pedestalize the money, number one. They think the money is the most important thing. But what you need to remember is, um, it was Dave, wasn't it? It was Dave. Yeah. What you need to remember, Dave, is you are pedestalizing their money. You're starting off in property. You need their money to get started. But people with money, so when I started in property, I, if somebody had 20 grand, I'd borrow 20 grand, 10 grand, 5 grand. Any amount of money was important to me because I had no money. But today... I wouldn't join venture with anybody if they didn't have a minimum of a quarter of a million pound. And the reason for this is, is number one is it's actually easier to raise a quarter of a million pounds than it is to raise 10 grand. But most importantly, when you borrow 10 grand off somebody, that's their life savings. And they're going to be checking up on every single thing. Like, why is a pound gone out of my bank account? But if you spend, if somebody lends you 250 grand plus, That's not their life savings generally. That's just a percentage of what they have. And they are not pedestalizing the money. People with a quarter of a million pound plus, a half a million, a million, they don't pedestalize money. People with money, they pedestalize their time. And they realize at the start, and and I've been here, is that start of the journey, money was the most important thing to me. And it'll be probably the most important thing to you. But don't make it too important. Because when you go into a negotiation trying to find a JV partner and you're speaking to them, if you're pedestalizing the money and seeing it as the most important thing, what's actually happening subconsciously is you're coming across as desperate. You're coming across as needing the money. And they're going to see the desperation in the need for the money instead of seeing you as the person that they can trust, that knows what they're doing, that's credible. That, and you might be starting off thinking, well, how do I know what I'm doing? How am I credible? Well, you, know, you, can, you might not know the strategies, every, every strategy. 
do some training, learn the strategies. But more importantly, you know stuff that I don't know about your area. You'll know the house prices, the streets. You can be very credible about knowing companies in your area, knowing the town plan in your area, knowing um, what developments are going to be happening in the next few years in your area, knowing your numbers, rental prices in your area, sale prices in your area. You want to sell yourself to the JV partner as showing them that you know your area inside out. You know the numbers. Build your credibility that way. You might not have done any deals yet, but you've got a lot to bring to the table. You're going to educate yourself. You're going to speak to estate agents. You're going to build relationships with them. You're going to build relationships with letting agents. You're going to find a power team locally, builders, accountants, mortgage brokers. You're going to sort out the finance. You're going to source the deals. You're going to do all the marketing. You're going to do loads of stuff while the JV partner, all they're doing is putting the money in. They have, if you focus on higher net worth individuals, they won't pedestalize the money. They'll pedestalize their time. And your job is to focus on showing them how you can save them a huge amount of time by working with you. And you bring all of the skill set. I would work with people, not just because they know everything about property, because here's the reality. If somebody says they know everything about property, it's bullshit. They don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. I don't know everything about property. I know a lot about property, but I'll never know everything. What you want to do is be honest, because that builds credibility and say, look at I don't know everything about property, but I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work my ass off. I'm going to make sure your money is only invested into a safe deal. I'm going to make sure I build great relationships with people locally. I'm going to research my area. I'm going to put every hour of the day that I've got free into making sure that I do the best with your money to make sure we get the best return on your money and get you your money back as quick as possible. And I won't take a penny of your money into my bank account or anything else. I've never held anybody's money. You don't need to hold a JV partner's money in your bank account. You need it to be sent to a solicitor. So they don't build credibility by saying, I don't want to see your money. I don't want to touch your money. Just transfer it into a solicitor's account. And when we find a deal, you can, the solicitor can use that money to pay to purchase the deal. I don't see the money. My job is to find the deals. Find good deals that will give you a great return on your money. So don't pedestalize the money. Try and pedestalize yourself. Try and pedestalize all the skills you bring, all the time, the effort, the dedication, the commitment, all of those things that you can bring to the relationship, the trust. The money is not the most important thing, trust me. At the moment, you may feel it is. It is absolutely not, especially to the people with money. Richard Branson has 400 companies. He do, money is not what's important to him. People's time is. It's this, lots of people have got a lot of money out there and they need you to get their money working hard for them. So focus on solving their problem. When you're speaking to the JV partner, so number one, tip one is believe in yourself and believe that you that don't pedestalize the money, pedestalize you and what you bring to the table. Don't come across desperate. And then number two, most important then is focus on what's important to them. So when you're speaking to people about joint venturing with you, don't focus on me, I need your money, I need your money, I need your money. It's about what's important to them. So if they want to do HMOs, guess what? Do HMOs. If they want to do single lets, do single lets. If Do whatever they want to do. So you need their money, yes. Don't pedestalize it, but you need it. But don't try and make them do something they don't want to do. The most important person in the joint venture, yes, it's important that it's you, but actually the most important thing in a joint venture is that you do what's right for your JV partner, that you help your JV partner in the best possible way. And that's by solving their problems. 
Rob Moore always says, one of, the first, one of the things I always remember when I did my training initially at Progressive a few years ago was the most important question to ask a joint venture partner is, what is most important to you in working with me? If you ask that question, what is most important to you in working with me, and you solve that question for the JV partner, they will want to work with you. Don't just focus on, I need your money. I want to put your money into this. This is what I'm going to use your money on. That's the wrong approach. The correct approach is, what's most important to you? What would you like to do? And if they say, well, I'm not sure, what do you suggest? Then you can advise them. But always ask them first, because they may have a, an idea of what they want to do with their money. Your job is to then do that thing for them. If they don't know what to do with the money, then you can do what's right for you so long as it makes both of you a good return. So hopefully that answers your question. I can't even remember what the question was again. Is this helpful? If this is helpful, by the way, say yes. Give me a few comments. Say it. That would be really cool, because at least I know I'm not wasting my time. I'm kidding. More questions. Tracy, I think you may have... It's gone again. Well, oh, where are you going? You're gone? so popular, Kevin. There's too many too questions. Too many questions. Now you've asked for them. Oh, it's gone. No, we're getting to there he is. Go, go, go. I think you may have missed ah, my question. Sorry, Tracy, there's hundreds of them. So adding it again here. What is the best no money down strategy to start with? Oh, Tracy, what's the best no money down strategy to start with? Um, there's only one. Marketing. Marketing. So... It's not about one strategy being better than another. This is a really critical question. I see so many people in property struggling and failing for one simple reason. This is what they do. They know what they want to do. So they want to do single lets, a strategy. People get confused between strategy and tools. No many downs are not, no many down strategies are actually not strategies, they're tools. People, the strategies are single lets, HMOs, commercial conversions, um, buy to flip, um, uh, what else have I missed? Serviced accommodation. Their strategy. Rent to rent is not a strategy. Rent to rent is a tool. So don't get confused. People say, oh, what's your strategy? Oh, it's rent to rent. No. Rent to rent is the tool that allows you to do single let HMO commercial. Buy to let. Buy to single let. Buy to HMO. Buy to serviced accommodation. Rent to rent is rent to single let. Rent to HMO. Rent to serviced accommodation. The strategy is single let. The tool is rent. The strategy is HMO. The tool is rent. The strategy is service accommodation. The tool is rent. Don't think, um, what's the best strategy to use? It's about doing the right thing in the right house. So some people on here, and, and, and I did this mistake for years, they try to do, and I tried to do what I loved doing. But don't, you can't do what you love to do in your area. You have to do what works in your area. Now, if you've got a one, two, or three bed flat, if you, my, my strategy is marketing. I put my marketing out there. Leaflets, postcards, letters, um, estate agents, word of mouth, and postcards, whatever I can that I can get out into the industry, out into my local town. The phone will ring. My phone will start to ring. I'll get some calls. When the calls start to come in, somebody might have a one bed flat that's for, that they're trying to sell or trying to rent. If it's a one bed flat, I'm not going to do a HMO on it because it's a house of multiple occupation. It's a one bed flat. So I'll either do single let or I'll do serviced accommodation. Same if it's a two bed or a three bed flat. One, two or three bed flats are perfect for serviced accommodation or for single lets. Four bed plus, so four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten beds are better for HMOs. 
So your strategy should be marketing. Then you pick the right no money down tool to secure the deal to do SA, HMO, commercial, etc. But marketing is your strategy. Marketing. You cannot do anything. You cannot do lease options. You cannot do anything unless you are marketing and people ring you or message you so you've got a deal, a lead to potentially turn into a deal. Lease options are not a strategy. Lease options are a tool. You can do a lease option. So it's a, a lease option is where you can take an option to buy a property, pay the mortgage now, babysit the mortgage and buy it in the future. The lease option is the tool. You could do a lease option on a single let. You could do a lease option on a house, a flat, a piece of land, whatever it may be. You could do a lease option on a serviced accommodation. You could do a lease option on a HMO. So focus on marketing. It's a funnel. You got your funnel. You put marketing into the top of the funnel. When the mark, when the phone rings, whatever the person is trying to sell, you then take that property. If it's a one, two, three bed house or flat, it might be SA or single let. If it's a four, five, six, seven bed, it could be a HMO. If it's a piece of land, it could be um, a, a, build to, a build to let or build to sell. If it's an empty commercial building, it could be a commercial conversion. If it's a three, four, five bed house, but the numbers don't work on a HMO or on a serviced accommodation, it could be an assisted sale. So it's buy, don't buy to flip. So a buy to flip is you buy, refurbish, sell. A don't buy to flip is don't buy it. Do do the refurb and do sell. But Because one of the biggest challenges with buy to sell is you've got an extra 3% stamp duty. So instead of paying the stamp duty, the legals, all the holding costs while you're doing a refurb, joint venture with the homeowner and assist them in selling their house. Where you'll come in and use the savings on the stamp duty and the legal money and the finance costs and use that money to refurbish the house instead. And then you and the homeowner split the profit. So you could do that. So the, the strategy is flip. The tool is assisted sale. So, so it's not about which one works better. It's more about making sure you pick the right one for the house that's been presented to you. So HMOs are not better than SA. SA are not better than single let. Single let is not better than commercial. Commercial is not better than flipping something. It's, it's whatever that deal is, is then using the right no money down tool to make the right, to make the right decision on the use for that building and secure the profit for that building. Hope that makes sense. Um, and I, I believe you joined the VIP program, so hopefully see you on that soon. Should you search for another one? Yeah, loads of questions. I'll try and get through them. If I miss any questions, I apologize. Later on, just drop them in at the bottom if, you, if I have missed one, like Tracy has done. But there's, there's loads coming. Let me have a look for another. Ross. Hi, Ross. Um, hi, Kevin. Looking forward to Nominee Down Masterclass and Rent to Rent in November. Looking forward to having you in there, Ross. Um, your question's just gone. I read the wrong bit. Question, please. What are your top tips to find your gold mine area, please? Um, great question, Ross. Um, your gold mine area. So first of all, the 69 people watching live right now, 70. Every one of you that are watching live, your gold mine area is where you live. It's right where you are, your area. I see too many people traveling all over the country trying to find deals elsewhere. This is what you do. I live in London. I need to invest up in Leeds. You live in Leeds. Oh, I need to invest in Manchester. It's better over there because I met somebody who said it was. I live in Manchester. I've heard Middlesbrough is better. I live in Middlesbrough. I wish I lived in London because you can get a much better return. 
So people, all, everybody that I meet that doesn't do well in property, they all have one common problem. They think the grass is greener somewhere else. They think that it won't work in their area and they use it as an excuse to not do anything. And they end up traveling all over the country trying to find another area. And this is a little bit of therapy for me, by the way, because I used to live in London. I was going way up north back in 2006, 7, 8, trying to find property deals the other side of the country. And this is what I was doing. The whole point of you getting into property or into any business, if you're not interested in property and you're listening to this and you want to get in, be in business, the whole point of being in business for yourself is to get your time back, to stop exchanging your time for money, building somebody else's dream, right? We spend too much of our lives building somebody else's dream. And then you, to do that, you live in, in London and you start spending your free time driving up the motorway to Leeds or Middlesbrough or somewhere else, Nottingham, whatever. And you've just created a second job. That's what you've done. You've exchanged one job for another job, except now you're stuck in motorway services. You're eating shit food. You're staying in hotels you don't want to stay in. You're away from your family trying to build this property dream when you could have done it on your own doorstep. Re read a book. There's a book called Acres of Diamonds. Read the book Acres of Diamonds. I'm going to ruin it on you anyway, but read it if you like. But there's, a, there's only one really concept you need to think about from this book. This guy in America, I believe was, I don't know the whole thing in the book. I, I read it a few years ago, but it really resonated with me. He wanted to, in the diamond mine, the diamond rush a few years ago in America, he had a farm and he sold up his farm and he headed off all around America and around the world trying to find diamonds to get wealthy and become a millionaire. As he, when he traveled the world looking for diamonds and never found any, what ended up happening was he ended up dying on the side of a, of a diamond mine somewhere where with no money, no family, no friends, no nothing. And a few years after he had sold the farm, the new owners were out fishing on his river on the farm one day and seen something sparkly in the water. They leant down, picked it up out of the water and didn't know what it was, but thought this could, looks like a diamond. They took it to town. The guy in town at a diamond shop, what it was a diamond shop, like a pawnbroker, sent it off to an analyze it. It came back and it was confirmed it was a diamond. They brought the, pe the diamond people to the farm, to the river, and they uncovered the biggest diamond mine in American history. Sometimes, the point of this story is sometimes we have the gold, the diamonds, the, the, the thing we need right on our doorsteps. But what we think is we have to be somewhere else. And we ignore our own doorstep because it's too expensive, it's too cheap. I hear people say, oh, it's too cheap in my area. Others saying it's too expensive in my area. So what you do is you head off to some other part of the country to try and get success. Don't head all across the country creating a second job. Focus on what works in your area. You are the subject matter expert of your area. You know your town, you know your street. Your gold mine area is right where you live. Your job is to learn what works in your area. Because I'm telling you right now, there is people doing property deals wherever you are in this country. There is property deals getting done today in every single part of this country. Your job is to not say, I love HMOs, I want to do the HMOs. Your job is to say, what works in my area? I am going to do what works because here's what will happen. That will make you money and you will fall in love with the thing that makes you the money. So focus on your area. Now in your area, you might have, I don't know, 200,000 houses, 400,000 houses. Let's just say 200,000 houses. In my area, there's 42,000. 
I only invest in 2,000 house area. But the reason I invest in a 2,000 house area is I invest in a small area where people want to rent rooms and I've got a completely separate area where they want to have homes, houses. What I do with the houses is I go for the higher yielding cheap houses and I've got an area where the property, it's just outside of what I would call the Bronx, where uh, you can get a really cheap house, but if you go to collect the rent, you're going to get shot or stabbed. So you want to be just outside of that, where you've got a tenant who's got a mindset of being a tenant for the rest of their life. If you go, quite often I see people and they think, well, I don't want to have a lower demographic tenant because they're, they're not going to look after my house as well. But the reality is, having done property for a number of years now, and I've got over, I've got probably 300 plus tenants. The reality is, those people look after your house better than middle, middle demographic people. And here's why. Lower demographic people, they have a mindset of wanting to be a homeowner for the rest of their life. So they see your house as their home. While somebody that's in, say, suburbia, and, you know, more upper, upper expensive area of town, they will rent, they might have a good job, the partner's got a good job, they've got a nice car on the drive, they keep up with the Joneses type people. They don't want to be renters for the rest of their life. Their mindset is they want to be a homeowner. So what they're using your house for is just a stopgap. They're using your house for long enough until they can save up enough money to buy a home. Meaning, if you're buying a more expensive house to put a tenant in who pays a bit more rent, but the yield is less than in the lower demographic area, but also, not only is the yield less, you get a tenant who's treating it like a, a rental instead of a tenant treating it like a home, and you've got a tenant who's not planning to stay very long, which means when they move out, you're going to have voids. No rental income coming in, and you're going to get a letting agent to find you a new tenant, and the letting agent are going to charge you tenant fine fees, etc. So your overall income from that property is, is reducing, reducing, reducing. So lower demographic on the edge of the sort of Bronxy area, just outside the worst streets in town, and all of you should know where this is. In your own head, you'll be thinking, I know those streets. I know the streets that I wouldn't invest in, and I know the ones that are pretty good. That's where I would do the, the long-term buy to hold. But other strategies like um, tenant buyers is a great strategy. So tenant buyers is um, somebody can rent and buy at the same time. But I'll do that, not outside the Bronx, I'll do that in a, up, in a higher demographic area. So somewhere where somebody wants to keep up with the Joneses. So there's a different part of town for a different strategy. If you're doing buy to flips, you don't do that in the lower demographic area. You want to do, because you're doing a flip and you want to find a homeowner, you're going to do that in a, in a nicer area of town. And that means as well that the, the money you spend will give a higher uplift in the value. So it's about, when you talk about gold mine area, make sure that you know, Ross, um, what is your, are you looking for a gold mine area for flips? That's a completely different gold mine area to, say, HMO rooms. HMO rooms want to be town center, near the train station, something like that. Easily commutable um, to tubes, etc. Flip area needs to be where there's a, a need for people or a want for people to keep up with the Joneses type area, suburbia. Long-term buy to rent for single lets, that's going to be near um, the Bronxy area. Assisted uh, uh, serviced accommodation follow hotels. Hotels have already done the research. People say to me, oh, I don't know if a service accommodation will work in my area. My first question back is, is there a hotel near you? Oh, yes. Well, then it works. Because if there's a hotel near you, people clearly want to stay by the night. 
So put your essays near hotels. Hotels have spent millions of pounds on research to identify this is a good location for a hotel. They've already done the research for you. Piggyback off the back of their research. I'm shattered. How are you getting on? Is this good content? I hope you're learning stuff. Tell, give me a yes if it's good content. Post below if you've got any more questions. I need a drink. I need a, I need a break. I'm loving this, by the way. Um, you can tell I'm probably a little bit passionate about it because I see too many people doing property the wrong way. I see too many people trying to do property deals, but they're not focused and they're not clear on their strategy, on their tools, on their marketing. They're, they're just jumping in trying to do property and they're not doing it professionally. They're focusing on one thing and it's not quite the right thing. They don't know the difference between a goal and a strategy. You've got to make sure you're very clear. Very clear and have a very clear plan. Who's next? Where do you find investors? Karen, there is 77 people watching this right now. That is 77 people that are investors. They're right there. If you've got, a, they're all over the place. Here's an example, right? You go on an airplane, you go on a train, you go on a tube, and you listen to an educational book, and you listen to it on Audible, and you stick headphones in, and nobody has a clue that you're listening to a book about property or that, or that you're listening to a book about some other random thing. I was going to say crap, but I won't because I would never say that on a live. Other random thing. All right, so this is, this is what you should be doing. I don't care if you've got headphones in. Buy a book. Buy a book where the front cover says something like, I don't know, no money down property investing on Amazon. I'm kidding. Buy a book that says multiple streams of property income. No money down property. Property, property, property. Buy a book that says property. And hold it. Hold it up where it says property. And read it on the train. Read it on the airplane. So when people are passing you by, they can see your book. They can see you're interested in property. They might actually have a conversation with you. A guy that did my no money down training, Kane Leeming, he went on holidays earlier this year, he went skiing. And on the way back on the flight, he was chatting on the airplane to one of his friends. Kane might be on here actually, I don't know if he's a supporter. But he was on the airplane, he was chatting to one of his friends on the plane about this deal he was looking at and the returns on the deal. Just chatting away on the plane, but obviously out loud. He got off the airplane, he went through the airport, he went through security, and he was heading out the front of the airport, outside after security, after the getting through the whole terminal thing, heading out of the airport, and there was a guy that was obviously picking up the carriage to speak to him. And he tapped him, and he went up beside him, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, I'm really sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, I didn't mean to overhear you, but I heard you speaking about property on the airplane. I'm really interested in property. I've got some money available. The deal you were talking about sounds really interesting. Here's my card. Would you mind giving, a call, giving me a call and we have a conversation about it? The point of this is you have to put yourself at risk of people offering you money. If you're at home and you're not telling people, if you attend, attend property networking events, that's great. But here's the thing, on most property networking events, it's full of people who are also looking for money. Attend business networking events as well. So attend both. The property networking events, people can find you deals and there is some money in the room. But don't just focus on that. Go to business networking events. Make sure you've got your property beacon. I'm a property investor all, all the time, everywhere. Facebook. 
What does your Facebook profile say? Does it say property investor or does it say mechanic? What does it say is your job? I just picked mechanic randomly. I don't know why. Sorry to all the mechanics listening in. You could be a mechanic in property. But um, does it say teacher, mechanic, accountant, solicitor, or does it say property investor? What is your shop window saying? Social media is your shop window. If you're not telling people you do property, how are they going to know that you want money? How are they going to even approach you? Make sure you put yourself out there. Talk about property in public. Tell it. There's a three-foot rule. Tell everyone within three foot of you that you do property. And one saying I like to use is, "Do I'm in property. If you know anyone who's got a property problem that needs help, let me know. So that will have people approaching you. So what do you do in property, etc.? And then talk to them about how you work with joint venture partners. Oh, really? So how does that work? Oh, well, I find deals, they lend me money. Oh, I've got some money. Um, so if I had some money and I wanted to invest it, how would I do that? So the point is, the only way that you raise money is if you're telling people that you are looking for the money. You've got to put yourself at risk of getting the money. Most people that have never raised any money, and I ch- on a lot of my trainings, I'll ask people to put their hand up if they've raised money, and then I'll ask them to put their hand up if they haven't. And 90% of the people that put their hand up saying they haven't, then admit to the fact that they've never actually asked. And the difference between making the money and not raising, raising the money and not raising the money is asking. It really is. It's letting people know what you do and it's telling people you need the funds. Raise the money. Tell people what you do. So, so, so critical in property. Hope that answers that question. 